I wonder if you've ever heard that expression, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. You know, that expression is attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who is a 19th century poet and physician, who is also the father of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who's a famous Supreme Court justice. I think he was the longest Supreme Court justice to ever serve on the bench. Uh, But Sr. grew up in the early 19th century, and his father was actually a congregational minister in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who apparently gave us that quote, he was no friend of his father's faith. Indeed, for him, Christianity's heavenward focus, well, that was nothing but a distraction. It was an unwarranted division from the very real and present needs that people had. I wonder if you would be tempted to agree with him. You know, maybe you've come this morning and, and you'd consider yourself a bit of a skeptic to Christianity. Do you agree with that sentiment that some are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good? Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us right back to our study in uh, Paul's letter, the Second Corinthians. I invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, which you can find on page 966. Page 966, if you're using one of those uh, red Bibles in the seat back before you. And if you're just joining us to kind of bring you up to speed, the Apostle Paul has gone to Corinth. He has preached. He has seen converts come. He has planted a church. And it was a church in this wildly pagan and prosperous city of Corinth. And that was all during his second missionary journey. And he stayed there. And he ended up pastoring that church for almost two years. And if you want to think about that, you can actually read about all that happened back in Acts chapter 18. But then when Paul moved on and he continued in that missionary journey, well, the church stumbled. And instead of being distinct from the world, the church and these Christians, actually they became indistinguishable from it. As we've noted, the problem wasn't that there was a church in Corinth, but that there was what? Too much of Corinth in the church. That's exactly right. A few of you got it. All right. That's not the problem of church in Corinth. It was there was too much of Corinth that had come into the church. Right? False teachers had ascended into their pulpits, persuading people that Paul, well, he certainly can't be God's man. I mean, after all, Paul was unimpressive rhetorically to the Corinthians. He was small and weak physically. We've seen he suffered constantly. Paul was not exactly the kind of guy that would make search committees swoon, right, if they're looking for a pastor. And it's in this section of Paul's letter that what is he doing? He's having to defend his own life and ministry. And he's been sharing how not only do his afflictions authenticate his ministry, but they actually point us to a day when such afflictions and death will be swallowed up by life itself. As he says at the start of chapter 5, even if the earthly tent of our body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. But friends, what is all this heavenly mindedness that Paul began with there in in the end of 4 and into 5? What does that mean for the Corinthians' earthly ministry? Does it lead to a kind of disconnected passivity, the kind that's of no earthly good? Well, let's read chapter 5, verses 6 to 10 and find out. Paul writes, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, 
we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, friends, for Paul, it doesn't appear that one's heavenly destiny actually promotes this kind of disconnected passivity that we sometimes think of. Instead, the Christian's future certainty Well, Paul says that future certainty, well, that entails a certain kind of ethical responsibility, a certain kind of living in this life. So I think if we're to summarize the passage, part of what Paul's arguing is that our future assurance inspires both inner confidence and outer obedience. Paul's arguing, I think, that our future assurance, this this heavenly destination that is for these Christians, right? This future assurance, it inspires both inner confidence and outer obedience. So we're going to think firstly of the Christian's inner confidence in verses 6 through 8, and then secondly of his outer obedience, verses 9 to 10. So that's just going to serve as our two points there, the, the inner confidence and outer obedience. So let's first think about that inner confidence. Firstly, the inner confidence. Notice how verse 6 begins. Uh, it begins so there in the ESV, or therefore, if perhaps you have an NIV. Because verses 6 to 10, it's all an inference. It's all a consequence of what Paul argued back in 5, 1 to 5. Paul's saying, because we have this heavenly dwelling, 5, 1, a dwelling that God has not only prepared, but also guaranteed by his spirit, he says, therefore, as a consequence, verse 6, we are of good courage. Now that word courage, we can also translate as confidence, as some translations do. And notice Paul repeats that word a second time, that word courage or confidence. Again, in verse 8, he asserts it again. Yes, we are of good courage, verse 8. And in all this, Paul's speaking to his own inner life. Because of this heavenly destiny, Paul, well, Paul possesses an inner firmness. There's a resoluteness to him. There's There's a hopefulness to Paul. He's more focused on that future weight of glory, looking back to 417, than he is the present weight of his own afflictions. Paul's the kind of man who is able to live, as we've seen, he can live with confident abandon in this life because he knows God won't abandon him in the next life. Friend, what about you this morning? What about you? Do you possess the same inner confidence, this courage that Paul speaks of? You know, William James was a famous psychologist and his brother, some of you may know the author, Henry James. Well, William James is actually his brother. And he called death the worm at the core of man's own pretensions to happiness. The worm at the core, right? Despite all of life's joys, Despite the latest in medical advancements, health improvements, entertainment, part of what he's reminding us is how death slowly and methodically eats away at us. It's inescapable. 
It's sudden. It's universal. It's irreversible. Right? Death fears no man and comes for every man. That's the worm at the core that James spoke of. And that's what death is to so many who live on this earth. Because this life, for so many of us, is all we have. It's all we have to hold on to. And if that describes you, and there is this gnawing worm at the core, this unsettling fear of death, notice for Paul, death doesn't unsettle him. It doesn't unsettle him. And in fact, Paul's confident. He doesn't fear death because Paul knows what happens after death. Paul has the boldness here, the courage, the confidence of a man who knows what he believes and he knows where he's headed. And for Paul, that's not brash arrogance. That is simply justified biblical confidence in the promises of God. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, recognize that you can, in fact, have this very same courage and confidence that Paul has, right? Death for you doesn't have to be the worm at the core that slowly eats away at your confidence. And this comes, this comes by, by looking to Christ, to the one who has conquered death. Because there's only, friends, there's only one man, right, who barred a tomb, and then when he was done with it, he gave that tomb back. Right? There's only one man for whom we can follow his steps into the grave and then follow them out on the other side. And that's Jesus. Right? Death for us, it's a one-way ticket, but not for him. Jesus conquered death. And all of those who would look to him and trust in him, this one in whom death had no power, no sway, no final mastery over Jesus, well, as you look to him and trust in him, you can follow him. You can be united to him in a resurrection like his. Death doesn't have to have the last word on your own life. But you know, if you're Christian, Paul's also saying something to you. And he's saying that the certainty of your future, well, that should have some very present and real implications for how you live right now. That future, it comes back into the present. And it's a good reminder us because, you know, friends, in times like this, it's easy to become fearful. It can be easy to become scared, right? Given the direction society is headed, given the rise in violence, as even as Howard was praying this morning, the, we can think of inflation, we all feel that. We can think of tribalism. We can think of a growing militant secularism. We can think of nationalism across the globe. We can keep going on. There are reasons to be fearful. And for all those who stand in the way, even in our own nation, stand in the way of the sexual revolution, stand in the way of, of gay rights, folks like Tim Gill says that actually society must go on the offensive. And to quote him in an article from the Rolling Stone, society must punish the wicked, by which he means society should punish us, biblical Christians. Friends, that's the new intolerance of tolerance. So am I concerned about our future? Well, sure. You know, we've never been a Christian nation in the proper sense of that expression, and yet we are a nation that has been founded on distinctly Christian principles of equality, of dignity, of freedom of speech, freedom of religious expression. And in our generation, we're witnessing the erosion of many of those rights. 
And it's appropriate for us to advocate for those rights in the public square. That's a right and good thing to do. But here's the thing to notice. All those rights we hold dear, all those things we fight for, Paul had none of them. He had none of those rights. And yet that didn't unsettle Paul's confidence one bit. You know, listening sometimes to prominent conservative Christian voices, what I hear often is fear, panic, sometimes anger. And yet when you read Paul, you never get the sense that Paul is angry. You never get the sense that he's scared about where his own society is headed. And you certainly never get the sense that Paul is panicking. Right? He's going to argue in the public square. We see him do that. But he does so humbly. He does so persuasively. He doesn't do it with a chip on his shoulder. So we too can be confident. We too can be courageous because it doesn't finally change anything. If they punish us, if they persecute us, if they take this building from us. Well, why? Because we have something eternally that cannot be touched. We have something glorious, friends, that cannot be taken from us. As Peter writes, we have this inheritance that is, what, that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, kept in heaven, reserved for us. Christian, I wonder if you live with that kind of quiet, courageous, unshakable confidence. God does not promise that the kingdom of America wins. But he does promise that the kingdom of his son will. Friends, what kingdom are you investing in? What kingdom are you hoping in this morning? For Paul knows that in this life to be at home in the body is to be, as he says, away from the Lord, verse 6. Now when he says away from the Lord, he doesn't mean that God is absent from us or that in some way Paul doubts Christ's present with us through his spirit. But it does mean our experience of God's presence, well, it's partial, it's somewhat obscured, it's just but a shadow of what it one day will be. So as he writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul writes, for I know, or rather he says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully. For in this life, he says, verse 7, what? We walk by faith and not by sight. You know, walking is just a common metaphor for the Christian life. And it speaks to something because it speaks to how the Christian ought to be headed somewhere. Because Christianity is not just a bunch of doctrinal boxes that we check. Our Christianity is meant to be walked in the sense that it's meant to be lived, it's meant to be seen, it's meant to be understood. So when Paul says we walk by faith though, not by sight, it's clear Paul there is not making what philosophers would call like an epistemological claim. And I know that sounds a big word, it's just inherent in that word is knowledge. In other words, Paul's not saying we walk by faith because we can't be confident of anything, because we can't truly know anything. No, that's not what Paul says, though that's what many think faith is. Many would just see faith as this blind leap into the dark. It's belief in the 
absence of evidence. Or maybe even worse, maybe it's even belief despite evidence. Now that's how many think about faith. But that's not at all how the Bible talks about faith. Walking by faith for Paul doesn't mean blind trust. It's certainly not some leap into the darkness. It's not some benighted step backward. Faith is trusting in God's promises for the future, not in spite of what we know, but precisely because of what we know. Right? A man rose from the grave, and neither the Jews nor the Romans denied that fact. And we forget that. But just consider it. When it came to Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' opponents did not deny it. There were too many eyewitnesses deny it. They didn't deny it. They just denied what it said about him. No, our faith is not without evidence or in spite of evidence. Our faith in this scripture and in this Jesus is in accord with evidence. With this one who's risen from the dead. In fact, to become a Christian is much the opposite of the way it's portrayed. To become a Christian is actually to step out of darkness and to step out into the light. So as we talk about faith, it's important that we also recognize Paul is not merely here talking about mental assent. You know, faith being just sort of a tip of the hat, so to speak, to things that we know. Faith is much more than that. Faith is a kind of full-orbed trust. And it's an informed act of the will whereby we give ourselves over to God. So in the Bible, faith entails three things. It entails knowledge, it entails assent, and it entails trust. Knowledge in the sense that we must know certain things about who Jesus is, about his death and resurrection and coming return, things we've been singing and confessing this morning. But it doesn't just require knowledge, it does require assent, namely that we believe those things to be true, to be accurate. And now for some, that's where faith stops. That's all it is, knowledge of things and assent to those things. And it's precisely because some of us treat faith that way, as merely giving mental assent, that we surround ourselves with anemic belief. What the Bible would actually say is false belief. The kind of belief where we can go and we can give a little fist bump to God on Sunday and then yet go throughout the rest of the week and just run after the world. Ignore him. The kind of belief that likes to pay lip service to Jesus and yet their life sings a very different tune. The kind of belief that, you know, can does one of these for God, right? When things are going well, right? They can do that. Yeah, yay, God. And then when it's convenient for them, yes. But as soon as it becomes inconvenient, they don't know what it means to lay their lives out, to entrust their lives to this Jesus. And that's because for them, faith is merely knowledge and assent. But in the Bible, it also thirdly entails trust. It requires that we actually commit ourselves to these things and trust ourselves to these things. Give ourselves over to this Jesus. Because biblically, to believe God is to obey God. Which is to say that faith and deeds go hand in hand. 
Is that not James' point in James 2? Faith without works is dead. So here Paul can speak of living by faith in 5.7, but then notice in 5.10 he'll then talk about being judged by deeds. And for Paul that is not inconsistent. You know, we even think of the book of Romans, that great treatise on salvation by justification, you know, justification by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone, right? We can think of that, and we love it. And as Protestants, like, that's our book. Now, it's a big book. I'm a little daunted to preach through it. I haven't gotten there yet. It's a glorious book, and yet we forget, what's the expression that brackets Romans? Have any of you ever noticed this? Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26. It's that expression, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Because Paul knows that genuine faith follows. Belief, if it's true belief, it behaves. So if you know that old hymn, Trust and Obey, you know, trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but trust and obey, right? That song. Now you know why I don't sing, right? But that's the song, you know it. Well, you know, we sing that song, and if we're not careful, we separate those two things, trust and obedience. Maybe as if they're even two separate stages of the Christian life. As if it might be possible that we can trust God without ever really obeying God. But friends, that is never how faith is talked about in the Bible. And sadly, I fear there are many who hold themselves out as Christians and they misunderstand that. They say they trust Christ. And by that, they meant one day they heard some things and they gave it sent to some things. They made a profession, but that profession never followed itself up with any transformation in their own life. Which means then, friends, they've never truly trusted Evidence of saving faith is witnessed. It is always witnessed, however imperfectly, with the obedience of faith. And only that is biblical faith. Now verse 8 is just a summary statement of verses 6 and 7. And in verse 8, we actually learn more about Paul's own preference for his life. He says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And that word rather, I think you can even slightly better translate it prefer, as some translations do. It's, it's actually very similar to what Paul says in Philippians 1.23. My desire, right, preference is to depart and to be with Christ, right, depart from this life, for that is far better, Paul says. So notice Paul does not, he doesn't long to prolong his life on this earth. That's not what Paul longs for, right? Give me absolutely as many years as possible here, right? The more, the better. Paul doesn't want a long life. Paul wants a meaningful life. He wants a life that counts. He knows. Paul does. He's but a pilgrim, right? He's but a stranger in this world, like Israel in the wilderness, right? He's not home. As we sang, we're not home. Almost home, yes, but not yet, we're not destined for this world. We're destined for what? Something better, something greater, something infinitely more satisfying than this life has to offer. So friend, I wonder if that's how you view this life. Or are you regularly seeking to make this life your home? Have you invested yourself 
in this life in ways that, well, that reveal that all hopes and all dreams are here. You know, so just maybe ask yourself, what happens when life doesn't go your way? Are you crushed? Are you prone to despair when fortunes turned? Right? Are, you, are you tempted to think when things don't go your way that in some way you've been wronged? Friends, all this is revealing where your hopes, the hopes of your own heart, where they lie. You know, ask yourself, do you actually prefer to be here or do you long and desire to be home? Do you even know why home is better such that you would long for it, desire it? You know, the last prayer of Scripture is that Jesus would take us home. But we don't always feel comfortable praying that prayer. We don't always want to pray that prayer, right? We're so busy turning this life into our own little paradise. But Paul recognizes that day is coming, and it's a glorious one, a glorious reunion, a homecoming beyond our wildest imaginations, where Paul says we will be what? With the Lord. That's the expression he uses. And when he says with the Lord, he's not merely speaking geographically, as in we'll be in heaven, though that's true, with the Lord, that is warmly relational. It's a relational term where we will see and behold and be fully filled with the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, verse 8 is about as close as we get to the Bible's teaching uh, about, you know, what's referred to as the intermediate state. You know, so if you know the, the King James Bible, you might actually recognize this verse differently. Right, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. The notion that when we die, we are with Christ immediately. To be absent from the body, present with the Lord. We are with Christ immediately, even as we await that final resurrection and our own reunion with our own glorified and resurrected bodies. But friends, consider then what an encouragement verse 8 is. To know that in loss, our own loved ones in Christ, they are right now with Christ. They're with Christ. You know, this was in fact the very verse that Jonathan Edwards preached at the death of his dear friend David Brainerd. So a a missionary to the Indians died at I think only 30. Edwards felt that loss. And at his funeral, he preached on this verse, verse 8. And he spoke of a day when all these clogs and hindrances shall be removed and every separating wall shall be broken down and every impediment taken out of the way and all distance shall cease and the heart shall be holy and forever attached to him and bound to him by a perfect view of him. And Edwards goes on like that for two hours in a funeral sermon. And it's glorious truth. Friends, whether you have friends, yourself, or loved ones, parents, siblings, spouses, if they are in Christ, then verse 8 is comforting us with the knowledge that They're not just in the ground turning to dust. They're not suspended in some kind of soul sleep. They're certainly not in purgatory 
paying and working off in great pain their sins. No, when Christ died on the cross, his blood covered all, paid for all. Which means then, verse 8, that they are with him in his presence, rejoicing in him, delighting in him, praising him, worshiping him, freed from sin and sorrow, freed from pain and suffering, and that's where they are right now. They lack nothing. They grieve nothing. They lament nothing. They suffer nothing. They need nothing. Christ has become everything. And faith is sight. That fills Paul with inner confidence, with courage. But friends, that's not all. There's a second inference. Notice that word so, or therefore, at the start of verse 9. Therefore, whether home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Friends, our future assurance doesn't just inspire inner confidence, but secondly, outer obedience. That moves us to that second point, outer obedience. This, this need to please him. Now, at the thought of the intermediate state there, verse 8, Paul could have, he could have waxed and waned on what that life might be like. Right? When we're tempted to think of, of what's to come on the other side of this life, what do we love to do? We love to engage in endless speculation. Right? Go to Barnes & Noble, look at that afterlife section of the, uh, of the store, and you're going to find lots of speculation. Lots of speculation. No shortage of books on that. But for Paul, right, more important than speculation, is very practically the desire to please him. Right? Paul's eschatology, you could say, what his beliefs were about life after death, that is imminently practical. It's immediately so. He's not sitting idly by, staring into the sky. For Paul, these truths don't breed a kind of detached passivity about tomorrow. Rather, his aim is what? To please God today. We don't know when we'll die. Friends, but we can determine today how we'll live. And that's where Paul goes. So I wonder, my Christian friend, member of UBC, I wonder if, if, if this morning pleasing God, is that your ambition? Would you say that's your goal in life? Do you wake ever and think, how can I please God today? Do you ever stop to pray at the beginning of your day, how will I please God today? Do you ever close your eyes and wonder and reflect, how have I pleased God today? Friends, it's not exactly our instinct to do that, is it? That question to us, it can seem tiring, it can seem onerous. And if we're honest, sometimes that question, how do I please God? If we're honest with ourselves, we think that question's a little counterproductive. I mean, Satan's greatest deception, after all, is to have convinced us that to please God necessarily means in some ways that we now cannot please ourselves. That our pleasure 
can only be found actually and not seeking God's own pleasure? And is that not at the heart of the very first sin at the garden? And does not every day Satan whisper to us, if we want to find pleasure in this life in some way, we're going to have to divert from giving God pleasure. That's what we think. That's our instinct. When in fact, the Bible teaches that God is most pleased and we ourselves are in fact most pleased as we find our regular pleasure and delight in him. That's what the Bible teaches. Can sin be pleasurable? Well, sadly, yes, for a time. But friends, that sin never brings true happiness. It never brings lasting delight. So recognize that tied to every command in the Bible, tied to every command, there is lying behind it an implicit promise. Or as you you might say, behind every command is in essence a promise of God in disguise. That's how one writer has put it. Behind every command is is the promise of God, at least a promise of God in disguise. So when God says to Israel and to us, right, you shall have no other gods before me, what is implied in that command is the promise where God says, I will meet you. I will be sufficient for you. I alone can redeem you so you can trust in me. You don't need to look to them. When he says, you shall not covet, the implicit promise, of course, is God is saying to us, I know what you need, and I am able to satisfy you. I am able to fulfill the longings of your heart, so look to me. When he says, do not murder, God is saying, I can and will bring about justice, perfect justice. I got this, so leave it to me. Those are all the promises behind those commands. And God commands what he commands precisely because he has promised to us what he has promised to us. And there is great pleasure, friends, in those promises And when we trust those promises and live by those promises, we please God. Which is all the more important because in verse 10, Paul says that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Right there, this is Paul's way of just giving us a Western, right? There's going to be a reckoning one day. That reckoning will come. And that word for judgment seat, it's, it's bema. It's this common expression. It's this, this picture of an actual seat, which would have been at the heart of most major cities in the Roman Empire, a kind of raised platform, and it served as a kind of bench at the center of most every major city in the Roman Empire, and it was at this bench at the center of the city where Roman justice would be meted out. Paul himself, if you read Acts 18, he knew what it was like to be called before that judgment seat. When the governor, uh, Gallio, right, he was brought before there by the Jews, by those who hated what he was doing in Corinth. He had to be brought before that seat. He was tried before that seat. Paul knew that. But recognize here, Paul is not finally fearing Gallio's judgment seat. That's not what arrested Paul in this moment. It was not 
Pilate's seat there in Jerusalem. It was not Caesar's in Rome. It's not the Supreme Court, and it's not the court of public opinion. That's not what grabbed Paul's attention. Only one counts, Paul says, and it's the judgment seat of Christ. And I recognize many scoff at this notion that there's a judgment seat, right? Our culture, what does our culture tell us increasingly? That there's some kind of amorphous, what, spirit world in for us? A world without God, a world without judgment, a world without need of grace, without the need of a bodily resurrection, without fear of hell, and we all go to this place, at least most all of us go to this place, but who doesn't? Well, we can't really determine that. You know, many of you will know I was, I was raised a Unitarian, and uh, there's no judgment in Unitarianism. There are no distinctions, really, that hold in and after death, right? All roads lead up to the same mountain. All religions finally take us to the same destination. And, you know, in one sense, that's right, All religions do lead to God right to this judgment seat. They all lead there. And on that day, we're not going to simply be able to melt back into the crowd. We won't just drift off into the unknown. We will be brought before this judgment seat, and we will be asked to give an account. Friend, what will you say on that day? All religions lead to God, yes, but not all lead to the verdict of not guilty. So if you've come here again, and if you come and you're a skeptic to Christianity, right? You wouldn't identify as a Christian. Paul's trying to make plain before you that this Jesus, he is your only hope. And that may sound obnoxious to you. The first time I heard it, it sounded awfully obnoxious to me. But friend, only Jesus... Only he has lived sinlessly, perfectly pleasing the Father. You and I, if we're honest, we don't really try to please God. Sometimes we barely even try to please God. And even when we do, we still fail. Never Jesus, every time, perfect, which is why Jesus came and he lived. He lived a perfect life. He lived the life you and I will not live. And then he died sacrificially on a cross as God's payment and penalty for sin. He bore God's wrath so that you and I don't have to bear it. And then Jesus rose from the grave, right? He conquered what? Sin and death. So that we knew that that sacrifice had been accepted by God. He was raised for us. And friend, before that judgment seat, Jesus is our only hope. And friend, he can be yours, right? When you turn to him, when you look away from yourself, you look to Christ, you give your life in that faith, entrusting yourself to him, which means you repent of your sins, you believe upon him, you walk with him in the fellowship of a church, trusting Christ has paid that price for you. My non-Christian friend, Will you consider that? And ask yourself, if you walk away from that before this judgment seat, what hope do you have? But if you're a Christian, recognize actually the primary audience of verse 10, it's actually to us. The all who must appear before Christ in this context that Paul's referencing, he's speaking to the Corinthian believers there. 
And now to be clear, as he speaks to them, Paul is not concerned here with their condemnation. He's actually speaking about an evaluation, an evaluation of their lives. So when Paul says each one will receive what is due for what he's done, he's not teaching us that we're saved by our works, right? Ephesians 2.9 is clear. We're saved not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Or Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, right? Paul's clear. He's not contradicting himself. In Christ, then, as believers, we must know we possess a position, a glorious status in which no accusation will ever stick, no condemnation will ever hold, and no separation will ever come, right? We've got to know that. And yet, even as we keep that and hold fast to that, there is a commendation, there is an evaluation that Christ will make upon our own lives, Verse 10, if you will, is speaking about rewards. It's what Paul talked about back in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14, where he said, if the work that anyone has built upon the foundation, if that work survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, at the end of our lives, we're giving an account before Christ. And will the end result, Paul wants us to consider, he wants them to consider, will the end result be this enduring monument that lasts and is not burned up? Or will all we've given ourselves toward, will that just become a monument of ashes? Is that all it will be? Paul's saying what we do here and now in this body, it not only has moral significance, it has eternal consequence so my Christian friend how are you using your time how are you using this life that God has given you you know we are saved Paul's helping us see not to a life of aimlessness or indifference or to walk right back into sin it's saved to a life of service in the Lord so we are saved not by good works yes but we are saved for good works Ephesians 2 You know, some members of UBC, maybe one way just to think about evaluating your own life, evaluating it, maybe just compare it against our church covenant. Just reflect, because our church covenant itself reflects a lot of the commands and instructions that the Bible gives to those in fellowship community. So ask yourself, per the covenant, right, one of the questions, do I study God's word together? Would we, but I'm putting this in the first person here, Do I study God's word together, pray for others, and help those among us in need? Is that something that defines me, or does God's word really take a back seat in my own life? Does the spiritual life of other people not really register for me? Am I only concerned about my life? Do I ever pray for members of the church? You know, we have new directories out this morning. You can find them back at Connecting Point. We've got all of our church members, those whom we've covenanted to live this life with. You can pray for them right there. And wonderfully, this covenant is on the inside cover. You can use that to guide your own prayers. Another question, do I forsake the path of sin and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by denying ungodliness and worldly desires? So ask yourself, does that define me this week? Have I walked the path of righteousness or have I turned and trod that all too familiar path of sin? All right, what defines me? Do I speak the truth in love? 
avoiding all forms of gossip and slander as I seek to build others up according to their needs. That's what we're called to, and yet, so often, what do our words do? We tear down, we don't build up. How about you? Do I bear patiently with others, diligently pursuing biblical reconciliation and freely forgiving others as I've been forgiven in Christ? Friend, have you forgiven this week, even in light of the supper that we're about to take? Have you been gracious or do you prefer to bear grudges? Do you prefer to do that? Do you harbor bitterness? Do you prefer to keep lists of wrongs, long lists that Christ has not kept for you? Do you keep them for others? You know, when was the last time you shared the gospel with a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member? We commit to seeking the spread of the gospel across the ends of the earth. Friends, I could keep going, but those are just right there from our covenant, ways in which we seek to please God and to honor God such that as we give ourselves to him on that day, we will see that our work hasn't just become this monument of ashes. And it was in 1977 that that familiar Arkansas native, Johnny Cash, released his album, The Rambler. And maybe you will know, there was a song on that album called No Earthly Good. And in it was this refrain of Cash, if you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share that high ground where you stood. So heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. Right, that song just grabs that critique of Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And Cash, really, in that song, he offers it as a warning to Christians. And I wonder if you need that warning this morning. Because according to Paul, our future assurance, right, it should never be an excuse for passivity, not for detached disinterest in the problems around us. No, in fact, much the opposite. I think C.S. Lewis got it right, if you know his writings in Mere Christianity where he said a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. Indeed, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Our future assurance, inspiring both inner confidence and outer obedience. Friend, does it in you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we pray that it would. And we pray that it would first And foremost, by fixing on our eyes on those glories that are to come. Oh God, we pray that our hearts would be brought there. And they would long for what you have promised to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.